0: Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights.
1: Today's talk is with... Dr. Rick Doblin, the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. He is a dear friend, a warm-hearted human, uh, and one of the guiding lights and pioneers in the in today's psychedelic renaissance. Uh, we get to cover all kinds of things. Uh, my conversations with Rick are always engaging and fun, never dull. Uh, one of the funniest is the story of the rolling monks of Carmel, how back in 1984, Rick had a chance encounter with a couple of Benedictine monks at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur had a little sidebar conversation, hooked some brothers up with some compounds that they engaged with and enjoyed the presence of Christ consciousness in spite of their abbot's concern. So you can feel free to jump into that story. You probably haven't heard it anyplace else. Uh, he also shares some of the really productive and transformative research that's been happening with MDMA. And PTSD, but also not just with the trauma, but with alcoholism, with eating disorders. They're really beginning to expand the number of illnesses or conditions that they're considering treating, and the results are really, really encouraging. So you'll get to hear kind of fresh updates, the kind of things that don't always make it into print. Um, and, and some of Rick's, you know, distinctions and curiosities and insights over 30 to 40 years, actually including one funny-ass story about him going down to the new school in Florida for his undergraduate and realizing that the whole thing was a psychedelic nudist colony. And at the same time, he was recreating the study by going back in, uh, from good, the Good Friday experiment at Harvard and going back 25 years later and re-interviewing all of those people. So from his early days where he thought he was going to be a dropout and a psychedelic warrior slash criminal, all the way to leading the charge and having a PhD from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, working hand in hand with the DEA and the FDA to decriminalize MDMA access and everywhere in between. Uh, the conversation with Rick was a, was a delight um, and you just get to experience his warm-heartedness, his playfulness, his curiosity and most importantly his courage uh, because he has been blazing a trail that many of us have been getting to follow. There's a problem of consciousness, right? It is our inner ability to wrap our heads around these things and do the right thing uh, that, is, that is you know, fundamental to that. And then at the same time, you're describing specific clinical medical health. I mean, that's obviously where the trials are going. It's very focused on individual disease. And on the other hand, you're talking about kind of cultural or collective um, madness, for lack of a better term. <laughs> uh, help, help, help me understand how you see those two intertwining or or informing each other because um, one is a globally scaled project of how do we wake up humanity and the other is is you know to go forwards and the other is is how do we help individuals who have experienced trauma in the past looking backwards H- how do you hold those
2: yeah well I, maybe I, I think I'll go back to um, uh, nineteen eighty five and I had uh, one day I had a, a DMT experience my first one the next day ketamine and and it'll um, illustrate our strategy. So under the, and then this connection between individual and group uh, mental health. So um, under the influence of DMT, and this was with uh, Terrence McKenna and Ralph Metzner and a a bunch of people, we were all sitting in a circle. Um, Each one would smoke DMT while the others would sort of hold space and take 10, 15 minutes. Then you come back and you share what happened. And then you pass the pipe to the next person. So it was a whole evening of sort of sharing, and it was my first experience smoking DMT. And the first thing that I felt was this kind of, um, I saw this um, vertical line, and then I saw a horizontal line, and then I saw it turn red, and then I saw it build into cubes, three-dimensional cubes, and then I saw it turn into like an M.C. Escher painting where these cubes, where it no longer made sense, and then I was blasted into sort of hyperspace, you could say, or the universe, or... um, and I had this sense, and all of that is a fraction of a second. And then all of that, the the sense I had of this um, connection with all of evolution, and and sort of going back to the Big Bang, the moment of creation. And then I had this sense that um, even the words that I was using to talk to myself, sort of my deep interior narrative that I didn't develop any of the words, that it wasn't mine in the sense that it was only me building on all these billions of years and all these millions of people. And I'm a part of everything and everything is part of me. And it was this glorious, beautiful thing. And then something about my psyche, I think, which I appreciate, um, then it said, well, okay, if everything's a part of you and you're a part of everything, then Hitler's a part of you too, and you have to own it. And it was just like, what a shock. It was just like, you know, it cut the high, let me just say. <laughs> and it was like sinking of a stone. And it was really sobering. And it, it, I really just had to deal with it the whole rest of the evening while I was kind of listening to other people's stories. And um, and then the next night... Just, just uh, the sort of,
1: you had to metabolize the problem of evil.
2: Yeah, that it was not always out there, in other words, that, mm-hmm. that it wasn't me as an angel and the devil is out there and I'm good and Hitler's bad and you know, that we all have uh, ownership of these things. What we implement is a different thing, but it's part of our heritage, it's part of our capacities. Under certain circumstances, who knows, we could be pressured in certain ways. So during the next day I was dealing with it, and then the next evening we got together to do ketamine. Um, so it sounds like yes. a, rowdy, a rowdy boys weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, it was great. Well, and the other thing is that all of this was in the context of planning our lawsuit against the DEA to try to block them from criminalizing MDMA. So we'd have these, uh, you know, group meetings during the day and these experiential things at night. So somehow with the ketamine, I was flung into another situation with Hitler. And I was above and behind Hitler as he was giving these uh, mass speeches, you know, to, to large numbers of Germans. And so somehow or other, I was there, but not quite there. So I wasn't threatened, so I could kind of watch, and I was watching Hitler do this speech and the crowd being in rapture, and um, and it just was really um, increasingly frightening. And I, I felt like, how do I get inside his head? You know, if you can take Hitler and say, uh, you know, why are you doing this? Maybe there's a better way. You know, maybe, maybe how do we, you know, therapize on Hitler to, to avert this thing? and. Then I saw while I'm trying to think about this, I saw um, near the end of his speech, he does the Heil Hitler salute, and I saw it in a different way than I've ever saw it before. In that he was like pushing the energy from him out to the masses, and then the masses were pushing the energy back to him. But it was like concentrated, like you know, hundred thousand people or whatever are doing the giving him this energy, and then it goes back and forth like this vibration that's increasing and increasing and increasing and you know they're all the one and the many are sort of merging into this kind of um, ecstasy you could say even of this sort of blending and it was terrifying and i felt like if i couldn't look at it um i wouldn't be able to, to pursue my mission and i realized uh, with ketamine that you can breathe that if you breathe um, you know you can help uh, metabolize fear or so it grounds you And so I was able to see this. And then I came to the conclusion that there was actually no way for me to get into Hitler's head, because he had to be willing. You know, if somebody is willing, the same is true in therapy. You know, if somebody is not willing to do the work, they're not going to get better. They're the ones that have to do the work. You create a safe environment, and hopefully that will motivate them And hopefully their suffering also motivates them to try to do the hard work. So what I realized was, ironically, that easier than changing the mind of uh, evil dictators, it will be easier and more important to change the mind of the masses who don't get as much from it. They're giving away their power. (laughs) He's accumulating it. So that led to this idea that we need mass mental health as the solution, we need millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people to be more spiritualized, to have this sense that we're all in it together, Um, not to have all these different groups fighting each other, but that we're all in it together. And that that kind of we're all in it together can be something that cherishes and appreciates individuality, that it's both. The mass and the individual, and both are enhanced at the same time. That you can become more fully yourself in this kind of uh, embrace of the group. Mm-hmm. That it's not that everything is homogenized into one thing, that, that we are joined together, but we become uniquely who ourselves are. So let's look at our bodies. You know, all of ourselves are joined together, but they're highly specialized. You know, people are listening with their ears, they're seeing with their eyes, this dialogue that we're having now. So our bodies Mm -hmm. become highly specialized, but they're all united in one thing together. And then Mm -hmm. our bodies, you know, united in culture and all of that. So what that means is that the individual work that we do to help people heal their trauma and to help them become more fully themselves, if we can reach enough people we can have an impact on mass consciousness. And that also means that we need to be on the one hand working to medicalize as a key tool in our society. You know, if there's any kind of um, religion you could say of the West, um, it's science. Although we have so much science denial going on now. But so we have a a war between the irrational and the rational. Mm So I felt like we need to medicalize through science. That's the way to counteract all the propaganda people got about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. But at the same time that we're trying to do that, we need drug policy reform. We need people to be able to access these drugs without going to their doctor or without going to a religion for religious freedom, just as um, personal growth, just um, similar, I would say, but a, a different approach, I think, than with alcohol, you know, that or with tobacco or, you know, there, there are limitations, there's regulations, and I think we should have a licensed legalization system where you get a license to do psychedelics, you go to a psychedelic clinic, you paid for by the tax money, and you have an experience under supervision, and you know what you're getting into, then you buy, you can get a license to buy a whole bunch of different kinds of psychedelics.
1: So you should get your psychonauts learner's permit, and then you get the real deal, and you can keep going.
2: Exactly, exactly. And and I, I think, you know, it, um, you know, Timothy Leary gets a lot of criticism, and rightly so. He also gets a lot of praise. But this idea was an idea that Timothy Leary talked about in the '60s—that there should be a license to do. something. Oh, the licensing, yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah.
1: So, so, so you've actually taken it further, right, with your idea of decriminalization and sort of open access and a sort of libertarian, you know, um,
2: you well, know, I wouldn't say cognitive liberty
1: but, perspective,
2: but, uh, but I would say not liberty. Yeah, sort of libertarian. I think there's a. Um, libertarianism I think goes too far on the individual rights and not a lo- enough on collective responsibility
1: mm-hmm. yeah so, so, so maybe we can call it cognitive liberty versus the connotations yes. of libertarianism so and in all that I mean you, again you're, you're you're touching on so many I mean by the way that was a that was a humdinger of an explanation as to the relationship (laughs) between individual therapy and collective consciousness going down the K-hole into hyperspace, weaving in Hitler, and then throwing in, you know, open access and and learner's permits for for inner space.
2: I think it would take me a while to figure out how to articulate that. Yeah,
1: yeah, well done. Um, now, Now, in that, you were talking about this idea of how do we find our sense of connectedness and at the same time preserve our autonomy and agency? Right, because obviously yeah. whether it's third Reich or whether it's you know development of of spiritual cults or any of those kind of things, the yeah. merging or union and the dissolution of boundaries often leads people to make bad choices. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. and how do we do how do we where do you see is the tightrope or the the royal road, depending on how wide you think it is, of being able to experience cosmic union or some other form of, of merging or oneness while maintaining agency via the psychedelic experience divorced from the two areas that you described, religion and a therapeutic context, because they, they but certainly both have limitations, but the upsides of them is they do have accumulated cultural best practices. Right? They say, go here, don't go here, try these things in this order, definitely stay away from that neck of the woods, versus leaving everyone to their own recognizance with very powerful tools in what is fundamentally a antinomian experience. You know, one of the classic signs of the psychedelic experience is sort of, I realize a lot of rules, structures, codes, maxims that I used to take as, as socially defined truths, I now realize are maybe relative or irrelevant. Um, how do we strike this balance between just giving people all the matches and hoping to God they you know they build a fire to cook with and don't burn the forest down?
2: Well let me say that that's the key question <laughs> how do we do that um, uh, trial and error but I, I think the the main point I would like to say in that sense is that um, we need to, um, recognize that um, people have to do their own work. So in a therapy setting, it's the power dynamics. So a lot of times, shamanism, in certain contexts, the shaman does the healing, you know, through the icaros or through blowing smoke or through sometimes, um, you know, through kind of magic tricks that they try to do to marshal the placebo effect or or, or whatever. So what we've tried to do is shift our whole therapeutic approach is based on we are not doing the healing. We're not doing the hard work. We meaning the um, therapists, that the people heal themselves. So what we want to do is to empower the individual to learn the tools and techniques of self healing so that they're not giving away their power to others to do that. So eventually, I would say, um, maybe even um, 20, 30, 40 years, we're gonna be learning a lot about the placebo effect. And we already know that uh, you trick your mind, different things Mm -hmm. that you can do healing, you can do amazing things with your mind if you're believing certain things. But how do we do that voluntarily, knowing what we're doing, manipulating our own immune systems or motivating our own immune systems or, or whatever? So I think, We have to have empowerment of the individual to make their own free choices. Also to recognize that in this collective kind of, um, you know, non-medical, non-religious freedom arguments that in Mm -hmm. recreational or celebrational or Burning Man or these other things that there are elements of spirituality and and medicine going on as well as just having fun so that Mm -hmm. We need to have this ability to move in and out of the group of feeling more voluntarily. So let me let me just give an example of um, problems I've had with um, um, the Native American Church, um, Peyote ceremonies, which are beautiful,
1: mm-hmm. or, or but, Santo Santo Dime or Udeve or something.
2: Yeah, that that that, and all religions. I'm not just wanting to say this that that you know most religions. They prioritize the group over the individual so that in a Native American church ceremony, you know, you're you you're not supposed to leave. You know, you're supposed to keep it within the container of the group. Um, what, what I'm finding with some of the uh, Santo DiMi or, or modified sort of UDV ceremonies is that they'll have the group setting, but they'll have a, a little area off to the side where if you wanna leave the group, you can lie down on a mattress, have your own experience and not be with the whole ceremony. So I think that we need to build these group settings where there's like an individual escape valve if if you wanna go off on your own. And and again, there's risks of that. You're high, you know, are you, you know, so it, it makes sense to say that you shouldn't be you know, leaving the bigger container um, and wandering down the street, but but that you don't have to stay with the group. And so I think you know this kind of individual escape valves that that's as, that's legitimate. That is, you don't have to prioritize the group over the individual. And with the individual, and this is where I think we were talking about it with uh, libertarianism, to recognize that we're never doing anything on our own. We're always supported by the group in all different ways. Um, and and sort of to, to not have this hyper-selfish individualism that doesn't give back to the commons. Mm-hmm. So, well,
1: let, let's let's explore that for a sec, because this you, you referenced Burning Man as an as an example. And for folks that don't know, it's a big giant desert festival that's been going on for 30 plus years and, and within that very open source environment, like it's, it's got minimalistic rules, but it's nonetheless a kind of creative culture that is quite coherent, has emerged. There is the room for the sacred, there's an actual temple, and there's lots of, play, there's lots of demonstrations of, I mean, let, let's say non-denominational religiosity, and even some reconstituted versions of Jewish faiths, Christian faiths, pagan faiths, other things. Um, that to me seems like it kind of strikes a creative sweet spot. In the sense that it is open source, minimal rules, but nonetheless, some, this something is happening. Um, and on the other hand, right, leaving everybody to their own devices can often end up with some very muddy stuff. It's almost like we're, we're hoping that all the monkeys at a typewriter will each become Shakespeare, you know, versus saying, here's Shakespeare, you know, let's start with that. So, you know, someone like a Yuval Harari has made a case that. You know, language and the, develop, the development of language and the ability to pass culture along has been one of the major things that's taken us from monkeys, you know, monkeys without clothes to monkeys with clothes, basically, right? We, 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 have, we get to benefit from the accumulated intelligence discoveries and wisdom of all the generations before us. And Jaron Lanier, the, the digital theorist, right, had, he wrote that great essay, uh, you know, over a decade ago called Digital Maoism. And he was talking about he's like look this whole crowdsource thing is awesome (laughs) you know uh, you know for making wikipedia it's very very good for large numbers of people guessing the number of jelly beans in a jar there's a finite discrete answer and the more heads you have on that problem the better he goes but it's absolutely crap for aesthetic or creative decisions and if you try and crowdsource a web design or an or or a piece of art you end up with you know you, you end up with beige so in this age, where like your Zendo project, I think you know models that beautifully, you know, of honoring the sovereignty of someone's individual interior experience during a spiritual or psychedelic crisis, right? And you guys are you guys have impeccable protocols for how not to get sucked into. I'm going to make sense for you, and on the other hand, in the realm of pandemic, QAnon. Batshit conspiracies: the more people that are starting to enter these domains, we are by default storytelling monkeys, and even if the keepers of the faith refuse to tell anyone what it all means, we're starting to tell stories anyway. So how do we bridge this non-denominational, sacrosanct, you know almost you know therapeutic relationship, right? This is your meaning to make versus Enough people are now getting, you know, sneaking through the garden gate that they're starting to tell stories about what's on the other side. Anyway, those stories are starting to cohere into meme complexes, and an awful lot of them are counterfactual, batshit crazy, or, or or straight up delusional or unhelpful. How do we strike that balance? Because I feel like we're really either have passed the inflection point or are right around the inflection point of we need to come up with a meaning 3.0, like if 1.0 was church and traditions, if 2.0 was the modern modern liberalism and, and rational science, you know, we have to have some form of post-conventional mythopoetics, otherwise we're just gonna go badly off the rails. What do you think about that? And, and what, what sort of signs of that or not are you seeing?
2: Well, I, I think that you've done a good job there pointing to the dangers of what's happening, that, that people are creating meaning in ways, some of them at least, that respond to these inner emotions, but don't have a rational component. And so that's again where I think we need to look at what are people's um, basic fears and anxieties. And I think one of the things that we see in our culture is this income inequality and this um, high levels of stress that a lot of people live with about how are they gonna survive. I mean, before the pandemic, it came out that about um, some very large fraction of people couldn't afford a $500 emergency, mm. you know, a, or a missed paycheck. That there, that people are living on such an edge of survival, and and we are, you know, in America, uh, tragically, you know, the, the only major uh, industrialized uh, Western country that doesn't have some form of real national health insurance so that that people are feeling especially vulnerable large numbers of them as resources have been amassed by a smaller and smaller group of people
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah. so i think we need to, to recognize that these conspiracy theories that they're they're ways for people to um project outward their anxieties you know yeah. okay now this cabal of Satanists that John, you know, that that uh, Joe Biden is in charge of and Democrats and they're sexually abusing and cannibalizing and drinking blood of kids and all this kind of stuff. That there's this uh, pedophile group, you know. So it's just I think what we need to do is see through the symbol, the story the extent that we can to the deeper fears and anxieties that people are having and also we all know that as we get older and older we we start dependent as a baby we become more independent in our middle stages and then we become a baby again near the end of our life and we as we move towards the death process and we become ever more dependent And so if you have this sense that the world is, not a friendly place that once you become dependent, you are going to be taken advantage of Mm. that the road ahead looks ever more terrifying. And if you're struggling during this middle period, how are you possibly going to take care of yourself as you start losing your facilities and getting more and more ill and not really being able to provide for your own survival when you need help from others. So I think that's, the key thing is to not so much get hooked up. Oh, these guys are crazy, and this QAnon thing is ridiculous, and which it is, all of that. Uh, but it's how do we get to the deeper fears and anxieties that people are experiencing that that cause them to need some sort of story that explains things?
1: Yeah, because we are, we are narrative creatures, right? I mean, it feels like that. You know, a functional definition of trauma that I heard is it it's it's two parts. You know, one is the neurosomatic imprint. That's the sort of body keeps the score, Bessel van der Kolk kind of idea. But the other is breakdown in narrative. You know, like, like someone suffering from, you know, I lost a buddy in Iraq to, to an IED. Some of it is bomb blast and, and head trauma. And the other part is, why did my buddy come home in a casket and not me? And and what are we fighting for? And is this just, you know, it, it's those unravelings or, or how could I be sexually traumatized in a family that was supposed to love me and, and keep me safe. It, it's it's those narrative collapses. So in those vacuums, we're absolutely, it's the whole fool's rush in, <laughs> you know, where angels fear to tread, right? We, we are creating um, these mimetic mashups. But my sense is, is that they're, they're often quite degraded. They're not even especially, that, that's back to the Jaron Lanier critique, right? We're, we're getting muddy. We're not getting inspiring new method poetics or, or God help us if we do. Cause like, I mean, QAnon is a classic example where it is is an amalgamation of a whole bunch of things left on the cutting room floor glommed together in something that feels (laughs) truthy, you know? Um, But if you try, if you pull on any of the threads, the whole thing on spools. I don't know if you're familiar with Molly Crockett's work. She was at, she was at Oxford for a while and she's now at Yale. Um, but she gave, to, to your point about exactly what's happening and people under stress and what are their needs, uh, she's done a phenomenal cross-section. She actually presented this at, uh, at in Davos, but it was the idea of that when people are chronically under stress, dopamine and serotonin uh, and, and oxytocin deplete that when you're low on serotonin, you actually end up primed for um, basically righteousness and vengeful action, even if it harms you. <laughs> and that when you get back into rallies or groups or crowds, and that could be a political rally, it could be a sporting event, it could be you know, uh, Nuremberg, right? Dopamine levels jack, as do oxytocin, and, and the dopamine will create a decrease in hyperaltruism. I mean, we give, a le- we give less of a shit about the stranger <laughs> it's basically like someone being coked up right you, you know, i'm high on dopamine and i and i now am less altruistic and i become high on oxytocin which actually creates ethnocentric in-group bonding and increases my ability and desire to other the other now all of those chemicals are the ones that play straight into the lane of the mdma work you're doing
2: yeah yeah so l- let me first by say that uh Bessel van der Kolk, um, you mentioned, uh, Body Keeps the Score, he's the principal investigator of our Boston site. So we're working very closely with him and he's uh, even written about how he thinks MDMA is the best, uh, with therapy is the best treatment for PTSD that he's discovered so far. Uh So that's really, the the other part about this um, thing I wanted to share is this idea of narrative creatures. Uh And so one of the things that's most amazing about MDMA therapy And this is also true about psilocybin therapy, general psychedelic therapy. Um, In an MDMA therapy session, it's about eight hours long. Um, We have a male-female co-therapy team. There's preparation and integration afterwards. But in the actual session, we're playing music, people's eyes are closed, and roughly around half the time, people are just um, in their own inner worlds. And the other half the time, they're talking to the therapists. With psilocybin or LSD, it's more like 90% of the time sort of they're in their inner world. They're not as verbal, it's not as communicative. But in both cases, what's happening is absolutely amazing storytelling that people are doing about their own life story. And often it's in metaphorical um, elements. So so just as an example, um, you know, one of the persons was a vet who came back from Iraq and he was um, filled with rage. You know, a lot of people were killed, Uh, you know, you you do have the survivor's guilt, why did he survive and these other people didn't, but he was just filled with rage. And during an MDMA experience, he had the idea that the warrior self, that he had seen what it could do in Iraq and it had terrified him. That when he came back, he had to keep it in a cage inside his body. And it was now a gorilla in a cage inside his body. And this gorilla didn't like being in the cage. And this gorilla was reaching through the bars with a knife to stab him in the side. You know, that that he and this warrior self of him were at war. And that he had to, you know, try to become a civilian and keep this in the cage. And so, under the influence of MDMA, he's recognizing that this warrior self kept him alive, as well as a lot of random luck, but that also that he was making it worse by having it caged up. And so the imagery then became, um, I'm going to um, let it out of the cage. First off, I'm gonna pull the knife out of my side, and then I'm going to let it out of the cage. And then these red hateful eyes, you know, were. he was looking at when he was giving it some freedom or sort of dissolving into something more um, friendly. And then he realized that this is just a part of himself. It's not the whole self and that he needed to be friended. And by the end of the experience, um, he and this warrior self gorilla had embraced and he didn't solve all of his PTSD, but he solved his rage problem. Hmm. So it's this incredible metaphorical process that people are going through during psychedelic therapy that is also sort of under awareness. We're always telling ourselves certain stories and that's a problem with PTSD. You tell yourself the the world is unsafe. People are out to attack me. Any noise could be I'm suddenly all back in the war again. The story, is it's not really over. And so you have to kind of work through it and then put it into long-term memory storage so that it's over. And then you can rewrite a new story for yourself. So I I think that this idea that, that we are these uh, narrative creatures and we're sometimes trapped by our stories and we don't even know the depth of our own stories. You know, I'm a fuck up. I hate myself. I'm never perfect. I was always criticized, you know, whatever, you know, most of us have that kind of, I'm imperfect human. So homegrown humans are not, um, perfect and that's a big problem so we're always able to criticize ourselves for this or that or you know i'm unworthy Mm -hmm. um so so
1: it's just like that that mary oliver poem you know you do not have to crawl for miles on your hands and knees through the desert repenting you know let the soft animal nature of yourself love what it loves i'd love to uh hear your your story of, of Big Sur uh, and, and your outreach into the spiritual community, because you, you, you mentioned this notion of homegrown humans and this idea of a dawning age of a more sophisticated or more comprehensive spirituality, where we both honor and understand our individuality and experience our collective. And that really maps, I mean, strongly echoes uh, Taylor de Chardin's notion of yeah, the omega exactly. point and the body of christ being exactly that being it's the sangha it's it's everyone as it like Thich Han talked about yeah. you took a cut at this and and you you did some you did some definite efforts to bridge the worlds of of the church uh and and participatory or experiential spirituality how, how, what happened how did that go
2: um, well, I think it's gone really well. Um, and and I'll just share that there's a new study for people that are listening, not that new, actually, it's about five years old now, with lifelong Zen meditators. So what, ha- what happened when um, the backlash in 1970 came around against psychedelics is a lot of the people did get into meditation as well as psychedelics. And there was this general sense that, okay, psychedelics are criminalized, but also we don't need them anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, now we are moving beyond, now we're, we're in, and so there, there's been- and
1: That's Alan Badimer's book, Zigzag Zen, does a great job covering that, right?
2: Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so what we see now coming together is this um, sort of Zen tradition, which has not been that open to psychedelics, but that there are always been people on the margins. And so the study that I'm talking about, was by a, a, the fellow uh, Vanya Palmers, coordinated it in Switzerland, his friend of mine, and it was lifelong Zen meditators going to a meditation retreat, and in the middle of it, getting a pill. And either half of them got MDMA—I mean, half of them got placebo, half got psilocybin—and they meditated before and after. They did brain scans at the University of Zurich, and afterwards, they did all sorts of questionnaires. And what they then—and then they did a crossover study for those people that had gotten the placebo later. We'd, we'd get the psilocybin. And what they demonstrated- Because you didn't want a bunch of pissed
1: off meditators feeling that they've been cut out of the game.
2: Exactly, exactly. That would not be good. And so um, they discovered that there were brain brain changes that they could identify, that there were um, ways in which those people that had not used psychedelics or never, or not for many, many, many decades, would experience states of mind with the psychedelic, with the psilocybin, that they could use as a guidepost for how to- aim their meditation in a way, even though it's without purpose, you know, but that they could deepen their meditation practice after Mm -hmm. that experience. So we're seeing a lot of these spiritual um, communities, meditative spiritual communities that had sort of gone beyond psychedelics, starting to weave them into their practice. Um, Mm -hmm. There's starting to be a lot of um, studies with mindfulness, you know, mindfulness and meditation has now become more widely accepted. Mm -hmm. as a very powerful tool for for different kinds of mental illnesses, but also just for general mental health and all. And so the mindfulness community is feeling comfortable enough to start weaving in psychedelics to blend with mindfulness. Um, I did a a podcast uh, two days ago with Andy Weil Hmm. and developed integrative medicine. Mm -hmm. And also integrative medicine is now mainstream enough, it set the ground so that we can start weaving in psychedelics to integrative medicine, mm-hmm. and so I see that the spirituality and psychedelics, which have been seen in some ways as different by some people, actually are very intertwined. There's a, and you, and you didn't, you know, didn't
1: you? You pulled this off because I mean, describing Zen, describing mindfulness, you sort of think, oh well, that, that figures. That 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 bunch, you know, they'd be down with it. But you you've also had. Um, some fascinating experiences within, like the bastions of Catholicism. Tell, tell us,
2: tell us about uh, Rabbi Zalman Schachter spoke to the Washington Post and compared MDMA to the Sabbath. And Brother David said that a monk could spend his whole life trying to reach the mood, the enlightened attitude that you can get from MDMA. So, uh, at one point, there were several monks at the monastery doing MDMA, and I got <laughs> called in uh, by Father Bruno, who was the head of the whole um, monastery. And it was this, uh, I wouldn't say inquisition, it was this uh, question (laughs) about what are my monks doing with your drugs? And I shared with him, Robert Mueller, this whole thing. I shared with him the Good Friday experiment, what was going on, it was still legal. And at the end of the conversation, he was satisfied enough to let it continue to take place. Now this was still while things were um, legal. Mm-hmm. But, but it was amazing. <laughs> so these traditions where you might not expect such open-minded people, mm-hmm. but when you move through the dogma to the mysticism underneath it, the mystics of the religions have more in common with each other than they do with the orthodox of their own religion.
0: Yeah, uh, and
1: absolutely. So and, and so... I, so, so, so let's explore this a bit more because that idea, I mean, and again, you know, you can't make up the uh, the the, perf- the perfectibility of this, right? I mean, everybody knows it as ecstasy, but back then it was Adam. You're sending it, you're giving it to monks who are contemplating yeah. Christ consciousness and being back yeah. into the garden, you know, and forbidden fruit that gets them there. Um, that is such a, that's such a perennial dynamic. In, as you said, I mean, the Sufis have been persec- persecuted in Islam. The, 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 the Tantrikas in, in Hinduism, even, even Tibetan Buddhism is often looked, right? It's, it's gonna look disconced by by Zen and Shana. as like these wild ass mountain shaman people. Um, so generally the freakier and deakier the mystical sects are, the more violently and thoroughly they get shut down or repressed at some point. And this kind of all comes back to, you, we, we've, we've explored it from the Zender project side and the therapeutics of like not making meaning for people, allowing them to construct their own. And we're exploring it from the institutional Orthodox religious side as well, which is how do we reconcile the, it's almost like mercury, you know, it's like Quicksilver. It's very hard to kind of grab or grasp the antinomian experience, you know, that bows to no man <laughs> as we become and you know adam as we become first man or or, or anthropos some form of you know what we've been playfully calling homegrown human like once somebody has been to the to the mountaintop or the wishing well pick you know pick our analogies um they're decidedly disinclined to submit to the laws of mankind again and and yet and, and at the same time there's a lot of narcissism, magical thinking, delusional stuff going on. How do we strike this balance? Like, is there such a thing? Would you be so bold? And like, if, if it's not maps, who would it be? To articulate a provisional roadmap for meaning 3.0? Sort of like, hey, enough of us are getting through the garden gate now. We're starting to understand the plants, the flowers, maybe some of the the, the, the dangerous and, and, and the uh, comfortable beasts, and you know, the two-leggeds and the four-leggeds. Now, how do we start creating a nomenclature and a way of being as more and more people come through this experience and start living their life informed from or or centered on this experience? Can can we pull this off?
2: Yeah, so I I think that the way that we're gonna need to do this, and this is very difficult, of course, is to go to the fundamentalists and to try to help them have these deeper experiences, the same way that I talked about the people that have all these fears and anxieties that that project on these conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. We have to sort of have mass mental health. So we have to have an outreach from those people that are um, more comfortable in a way, more uh, nuanced Mm -hmm. to those people that are solidifying into fundamentalist kind of thinking. And so there has to be this really big, I think, Outreach from one group to the other, and to try to help the the you you talked earlier too about this idea of um, you know your story, and if you end up giving up your story, you're often left with nothing. I think that's the the worry of the fundamentalists is that if they give up the idea that Jesus was resurrected and that there was a virgin birth and that all these kind of magical thinking. What we need to do is is. Take those people that are kind of um, trapped in some ways or see no way out of fundamentalism and say to them that when you give that, if you were to relax that, if you were to accept this idea that, um, you know, maybe there's not only one way to heaven and everybody else going to hell, Mm -hmm. that that, that you're not going to be left with nothing. And you're not gonna have to give up the tradition that you grew up in, that has meaning, but you just see it more symbolically than literally.
1: So how much, let's just fast forward, the classic Faustian stories, the Pandora's box, like are psychedelics, are they best left in the box? Should the box be flung open wide? What, What are the potential unintended consequences? For instance, like, I totally understand the idea of hey our wounded warriors and veterans deserve to be healed they tried to serve our country and they and they took hits for it I can totally understand that traumatized people and police forces you would want them to be better connected and more able to relate and have empathy to the people you know to reduce crime you know violent, unintended violence accidental shootings all the kinds of things we've been seeing and on the other hand you could have the US Army be like MDMA, that's awesome. We have we have drone operators in Vegas that are getting a little tweaked out from doing this horrendous thing that we're asking them to do. Pop a pill of MDMA, they're right as rain, and then go back to more targeted drone strikes. How do we help help foster the expansion of human dignity and liberation versus these tools becoming co-opted as just one more
2: cog in the machine? Well, again, a super great question. So... What we find, though, is that um, people who are traumatized, let's talk about the drone operators. Uh, And I don't think we've had any, we might have actually had a drone operator in our study. I'm not actually sure. Um, I know we've been in touch with some. Um, But the idea is that if you help them process the trauma, if you help them really deal with the emotional consequences, of what they're doing, it's not just a video game that you're destroying you know, electronic images, actually underneath it, you're killing people. When people come to terms with that, they are more capable of asking certain kinds of questions, like, do I wanna to continue to do this? Why am I doing this? What is the purpose of it? There, there's a whole new kind of understanding that we see in a lot of the veterans, and it's called moral injury, that makes PTSD even worse. It's this idea that if you are, um, I mean, this has nothing to do with psychedelics. A lot of people who are in the army right now have felt that what they're doing once they get to Iraq, once they get to Afghanistan, um, that the things that they're doing are more about protecting each other their fellow soldiers but it's not necessarily part of a bigger humanitarian mission that we never should have gone into Iraq that that we're not helping a lot of these cultures so that it's moral injury people can wrestle with that more so I'm I um, I'm not a pacifist. I think we need an army. I think the world is a dangerous place. Um, so I think that it's not, well, a, a German psychiatrist who's a close friend of mine, uh, Torsten Passi, said, um, would you give MDMA to a concentration camp guard? Mm-hmm. You know, we're traumatized by what you're doing.
1: Well, yeah, and it, it feels to me like that there's an important distinction as to Basically, who is funding, underwriting, sponsoring, endorsing that experience? Because if effectively you saw it as we're engaging in cult deprogramming from the machine, right? And and so, so this is a veterans organization and we're saying you've exited the moral hazard you were in and you now need to reconcile with that and then rejoin society. I get that. That makes total sense. The gray zone for me is what happens when it's the police department or the army Funding, sponsoring, coordinating. Because if it's successful, the very thing happens is they don't have any more army. And I mean, that was back in the late what late '50s, early '60s when they did those LSD studies with you know the army, and, and you know they dosed all the troops, and half of them just put down their M16s and walked off the lot. They're like, well, fuck this. And of course, those studies didn't persist. They undermined well, the very system that was you know, that was sponsoring them.
2: I think it was more short term, they they, yeah, they couldn't pay attention to marching in order, <laughs> like, but, but I, I think it's an individual choice. I think there's something noble about uh, being willing to sacrifice your life for the greater good and volunteer for the army. On the other hand, you know there's economic reasons why people do it, but there, there's something noble about it. And what we really need to realize, and this is, let's get back to mass mental health, is that in America, we have civilian control of the military. So what they're sent to do is decided by politicians and that therefore we need a much broader base of mass mental health. So we elect politicians that have more humanitarian motives rather than selfish motives. And so I do think that if some of the people that we work with um, go back to active duty that that's okay. I think they will be better soldiers, better, not more ruthless killing machines, but that they will be more aware of the emotional consequences of what they're doing, you know, more, uh, perhaps, um, you know, willing to negotiate about certain things. So I, I'm not a pacifist, as I said, not against the army. And that, um, you know, I, I just was, uh, my, Michael Pollan's book was phenomenal, you know, how to change your mind. And so there's um Major streaming service that's uh, making documentary about it, and um, so I was interviewed just last week um, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And before my interview, they were interviewing a police officer who's also a psychotherapist who's going through our training program to give MMA to other police officers with PTSD, which I think is a triumph. You know. Um, I don't know how it happened exactly, but my um, sister's oldest son, my nephew, is a police officer in Washington D.C. Hmm. And, I don't know exactly how it happened, <laughs> uh, but he's uh, he's a really good guy, and he's mm-hmm. sympathetic with drug policy reform, and he's trying to be an honorable police officer. So there's a lot. Most of the police officers are really good people and have yeah. a sense of uh, you know protection. Um, there, there are others that don't, um, and then they've so. Well, well I mean, that, that, that's my
1: sense for sure, is that, is that you know, psychedelic, the psychedelic renaissance has been wasted on the fucking hippies. You know, like, like bottom line is, is get teachers and farmers and carpenters and firemen and soldiers and police officers and the salt of the earth people who actually do hard shit in the real world on behalf of everybody else and help yeah. them process and integrate and lighten their burden and expand their perspective a little bit from time to time because they deserve it because we all rely on them
2: well and they see the worst of humanity these people soldiers and police officers and and they're they're and they're in a macho culture that's trained to suppress their emotions which is not good for them and not good for their mission the culture either so i see it's good i think if we were only working with the police we want to also work with um people who've been recently released from incarceration and try to help reduce recidivism Eventually, we want to get into the prisons and work with prisoners to help them deal with why they're in prison and what happened and, and you know what were their own wounds before that. But So I think, yes, if we're just working with the police and the military, um, that would not be as um, balanced as trying to work with, uh, well, to give you an example, we're, we want to move to the European Medicines Agency. We've negotiated with them. We need to raise a bunch more money to do that. but. In our negotiations with the European Medicines Agency, they said that they want us to include refugees or migrants in our phase three study in Europe. You know, eventually we get MDMA into um, the refugee camps. We're working with people that are trying to see if they can get permission in Lebanon with after the big explosion and all the trauma that's in mm-hmm. Lebanon. So we're trying to work on the Israeli side, the Arab side, the police side, the criminal side, the military side, the, the victims of... Uh, human rights abuses mass mental health healing for all and yeah, so i think that's, that's really
1: yeah and, and actually i'm in a direct you know kind of connecting of the lineages um due in large part to your work and also stan groff's work um yeah. stan is actually our advisor on a project we're doing with johns hopkins and matt johnson uh, part of this the psychedelic team there on PTSD and breathwork and and, and the hope is is to be creating something that is you know approved by the VA but also that can go into educational environments and townships, refugee camps in South America, Africa and India for exactly this reason which is you know there will still be hurdles to schedule one psychedelic therapies you know cost access, cultural norms, a whole thousand things but if we can take the insights as to what states yeah. they're providing and all of those kinds of things, and 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 then and then create analogs that can be more compatible or more applicable in a you know in a kind of cascade of situations. We can take the high-level focused insights and then and then expand them, you know, to, to more and more people.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think breathwork can be very effective for PTSD, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and and so I think it's a great project. But I think Stan has always been of the view that. We just need a range of tools. Yeah, We can't throw out the breathwork. We can't throw out the psychedelics. We can't throw out meditation. We can't throw out non-drug psychotherapy, which yeah. works sometimes without any of these other things.
1: I mean, I, I just saw a study in Nature this week, actually, that was talking about, I was at Stanford, and it was basically, they were imaging mice and then, and then epileptic human patients um, on ketamine, <clears throat> and then were, were finding, deep delta wave brain state specifically three hertz and then they went back and and saw that and they're like okay and that was that was that coincided with the dissociative out-of-body experience typical of the ketamine um, dose and then they reverse engineered it with optogenetic priming and stimulated the brain i think at the hypothalamus at three hertz and then just that mechanical stimulation created the same out of body experience. And so you you see, and you know, so you're like, oh wow. So Delta waves show up in nitrous oxide activity, ketamine activity, it's a deep brainstem reset. It happens to have this dissociative impact, which happens to increase information and inspiration and be antidepressant. And, and it shows up in Dzogchen meditation and certain other very advanced esoteric meditative or contemplative techniques. And you're like, okay, fascinating. Now we've got a dozen ways to stimulate delta wave activity, we are now device agnostic, right? As the mechanisms in, and that's really empowering.
2: Yeah, and one of the really important things about that is that what we realize now is that psychedelics don't produce a psychedelic experience. Psychedelics produce a human experience catalyzed by psychedelics, and you can get there in other ways. And what that shows is that it's within us It's not that it's this overlay that's coming in with the drug, and when you remove the drug, it's not real. You know, it's somehow or other a drug experience. But the drug is more of a doorway into our own depth of experiences. And the fact that you can do this with breath work or certain kind of brain stimulations or other things is actually – really a good thing. It, it sort of validates the experience. And we don't need to say, oh, I mean, I think that was one of the big mistakes of the 60s, this idea of that um, those people that had a psychedelic experience somehow or other had more insight than people that had never done it and unique knowledge. Hmm. And I think that that was really um, an egotism <laughs> used by you know ego dissolution drugs that, that we're smarter than everybody else. So, so the counterculture did a lot of this us and them stuff mm-hmm. so I mean, very inspiring all these new approaches to recognize that these are experiences within um human capacity and there's a lot of different catalysts yeah yeah and, and same a- way you thought catalyst about a religion like oh psychedelics produce unique things and the, you only get to them through psychedelics uh, not the case at all
1: yeah, it does feel like there's a much bigger pattern language to human consciousness and culture. And and the benefit of drugs is, you know, as Oliver Sacks said, you know, they they provide a shortcut and offer transcendence on demand. But rather than that becoming also the Achilles heel, which is I don't do my push-ups, I don't do my work to earn the experience, like that's sort of, again, the Jungian beware of unearned wisdom, right? So rather than getting stuck there, you're like, oh, if they produce transcendence on demand, then that allows us experimentally and experientially to capture exactly what is happening in those states and then be able to reverse engineer them via more sustainable, scalable, safe, effective tool suites, or continue using those tools, but in fact but yeah. but, but provide cultural context
2: and wrapper around them. Yeah. And and also I just said that they don't produce it on demand in the sense that it requires more than the drug. It requires a certain kind of attitude, a certain kind of open, safe, supportive setting, so that it's not just the drug. People are gonna have terrible experiences with psychedelics that are not spiritual, that don't make, they're not therapeutic and they end up worse off. So that it's more than just the drug, it's the context. And I think that's the key point here is what we really need to be doing is building a culture that has contexts for this full range of non-ordinary states of consciousness, which Stan likes to call non-ordinary states, that we need to be really thinking about contexts. And so there's been a lot of people now with the rise of for-profit psychedelic pharma and stuff. People want to develop new drugs and patent them and um, improve on MDMA, improve on LSD, improve on psilocybin, all these different kinds of things. And I'm like, go for it. you know. But my interest is more about creating Contexts for the drugs that we already know about that have great potential and that that's really the, the we don't so much need one more molecule we need new context and that's what drug development and pharmaceutical drug development with psychedelics is creating is working through the regulatory system to demonstrate safety and efficacy to create new legal contexts which will ideally be covered by insurance we're working on that as well then we'll be Distributed through thousands and thousands of psychedelic clinics, and these psychedelic clinics will not be. Here's a Maps clinic that does MDMA. Here's a, a, a Compass Pathways clinic that does psilocybin. Um, you know, here's a ketamine clinic over there. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be the, the a new profession of psychedelic therapists, and mm. these people want to be cross-trained in all of the different modalities. Ontological DJs. Yeah. Um... Yeah. <laughs> Said, and that that's what's going to be happening.
1: Well, well, okay, so to that point though, right? You said, hey, it's not to say, you, you know, you you push back a little bit on the unearned wisdom or, or, or transcendence on demand. You say it has to be earned. You have to show up for it. And then I think another Swiss study that came out this month was the com- combination of LSD and MDMA, which, you know, colloquially well, is known as candy flipping, right? And the idea there yeah. presumably is that they're looking to dampen or buffer the... Internal experience of LSD with the more emotional, safe and secure, feel good of MDMA. Follow. Yeah, it's a
2: great. It's a great combination.
1: Right? Yeah. It's a great. <laughs> it's a great combination. He says with a Cheshire cat grin. <laughs> yeah. And so, but so now, now to your point about engineering new molecules, right? That way lies soma, right? That way lies the one that requires no steering, no effort. You pop the pill, and it's just you know whatever, four to eight hours of awesome. And, and is there danger in that? Like you, you mentioned Ibogaine and Ibogaine will never be abused because it is a trial to go yeah. through, right? You, you earn your fucking wisdom on, on, on yeah. Iboga, right? Candy flipping, let's say whatever, whatever Soma 2.0 looks like, could be problematic in that space. How, how do you see, and, and I don't want to be like a crypto Puritan and say that you have to struggle or suffer to earn it. But on the other hand, it, if it's too easy, do we lose something?
2: Well, Um, This is where we get back to what we are saying before about the placebo effect. So our goal with psychedelic therapy is to help people move through trauma or various other things and learn to heal themselves and afterwards to keep getting better without the use of the drug. So the same way that meditators who would use psilocybin could deepen their meditation practice through this whole long period of time afterwards without doing more psilocybin, trying to integrate that experience. So Mm -hmm. the danger is that if we rely just on the drug to realize that any place that a drug can get us, um, to some extent, we can work our way there through training our minds. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's that issue that if you're using a drug to have an experience that you then try to integrate and move towards that without having to do the drug all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been moments where I felt like I was on MDMA, even though I wasn't, mm-hmm. um, you know, just certain loving moments, certain openness, just things sort of came together, magical moments. And so I think, you know, it's hard to do that at will, but it that's the goal. So if the goal is only to escape or to have a particular experience, but not to, bring it back and integrate it so that you can build your muscles up to try to do that to some extent on your own then i'd say it's more dangerous to the extent that you see these as teaching tools that can bring states of mind that we then can try to work on in many different ways mind calisthenics meditation all these different ways to Mm -hmm. uh try to replicate it and and i said one day i think you know 30 years who knows when we're gonna hopefully put a bunch of research, not us necessarily, but others, into how do you catalyze the placebo effect? How do you get your immune mm-hmm. system to really start going after cancers when they're very early, you know, mm-hmm. consciously? Mm-hmm. Can you do that? Yeah. Maybe we can.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think, I think at, at heart, and this is awesome and perfect, and, and you're absolutely the right person for your job. I think you're fundamentally more optimistic than I am about the law of unintended consequences. Yeah, I
2: totally believe that. And so right? actually, let me ask you a question. Yeah. So uh, to, to what extent are you optimistic about um, homegrown humans being able to really uh, counteract all the negativity in the world?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that yeah. that is a beautiful question. I mean, my sense is, is that the chance we have is for people to self-initiate and initiate each other um, into that death rebirth experience that that ego death and redemption the the letting go of our pain and our past traumas the understanding of our perfectibility and our connection and 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 then taking up the yoke of what is to be done joyfully and courageously and that's you know that's gandhi's satyagraha that's what MLK translated into soul force and just saying, this is a force of evolution, right? When we stand up and we say, enough's enough. And when we stand yeah. up and we say, we are on the right side of love and life on behalf yeah. of the least of my brothers and sisters. Like that's the tank man in Tiananmen Square. You know, yeah. that's the 300 Spartans. That's the band playing on on the Titanic. It's these moments that make us weep. You know, it's the Dead Poet Society standing up on the desk. It's like, it's like yeah. when that moment when Seeking pleasure and avoiding pain for myself becomes secondary to something larger mm-hmm. that I acknowledge and stand up in service of. Like, to me, that's our last shot. Like okay, not, so that, none that of the, the other shit correct. pencils out. <laughs> like it's 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 such a How graha hopeful, or bust. How hopeful
2: are you? How hopeful are you? And while while you think about that, let me just say I'm glad you brought up Martin Luther King, and just for people to know that. Uh, Reverend Howard Thurman was Martin Luther King's mentor. Yes. Uh, And Howard Thurman was the one that was the minister during the Good Friday experiment. Oh, no way. I did not know that. Yes. And he also worked with Gandhi. So Howard Thurman was the one that really brought in this nonviolence for the civil rights movement. Holy
1: the idea shit! Because I, I, I dude, dude,
2: dude, I, 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 closed my TED talk at Burning Man
1: with that Howard Thurman quote. All I knew him as was as a civil rights activist and minister, but it's the don't ask yourself what makes you come alive. Yeah, right. Yes. Or don't ask what you don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive, and go and do that because the world needs all of us to come alive.
2: Yeah, exactly. Oh and my so god! He, Thank you. He was the one that Walter Pankey was studying with, and. Um, and he agreed to be the minister for the Good Friday experiment. And if you want to hear him, we have the tapes of the Good Friday experiment service of Howard Thurman. Oh, my God. Incredibly power, powerful, dynamic African-American minister, a beautiful, eloquent man. And so you go to the MAPS website and you just check out Good Friday. And and so we have the original tapes from the 1962 Good Friday experiment on our website. You can listen Holy to shit. Okay. So, so anybody
1: who is activated around Black Lives Matter right now, who the, the, the racial yep. justice movement today, and the potential deeper access to that aquifer of American yes. soul force, of, of righteous, principled protest with charity and forgiveness.
2: Exactly. And so that's where you see also that the Black Lives Matter, all these protests that people have been coming out for, incredibly great, that when they turn violent is when you... Lose a lot of your power. We it lose doesn't... soul force,
1: right? When, when it goes from the, we're taking a stand for the infinite game, all of us playing to the finite game. Let's smash this thing and take what's ours, yeah. regardless of right or left. You lose right. the exponential
2: force multiplier. Exactly. And so Reverend Howard Thurman was one of the principal adv- advocates of this nonviolent philosophy that Martin Luther King later adopted. So
1: that make that that makes my day. That makes my week for you to close the loop on on his legacy. Thank you.
2: Oh, great, Jimmy. Yeah, <laughs> terrific. Okay, <laughs> so now stars. let's get back to. So yeah, um, how... so, okay. So <laughs> so here's
1: my sense. My sense is is that um, John Gray, who's a who's a professor at London School of Economics, um, he wrote a great book called Black Mass and the Death of Utopian Thinking. So right, he he's he's very good at cautioning against any hockey stick uh, because he's like that's at its core it's just judeo-christian alpha and omega and even the communists did the same thing it was basically just you know uh, uh, the second coming minus baby jesus right and and so something like we give everyone psychedelics and the world wakes up and opens our hearts and we go marching off together you know has a has a tendency it can fall into that trap right where you're like oh be careful because if the ends are literally heaven on earth or heaven off this earth, then the means are always justified, and that way lies totalitarian yes. groupthink. So, my sense is is that it's closer. Like the place I find solace is again to follow King, to Thurman, to Gandhi, to Emerson and Thoreau. Is is the yeah. resonance with the Bhagavad Gita, you know, where Krishna is Krishna is advising Arjuna, the prince, and 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 Arjuna doesn't want to go into the battle because his family's on both sides and he's like i don't want to fucking do this and krishna's like you have to sack it up son because your time for cherished outcomes has passed and your only redemption now lies in the fulfillment of your dharma like play your part right Mm -hmm. you know with all your heart that's all you can do And I think that that's why it resonated with Emerson and Thoreau, why with King, why with Gandhi, Mandela, is is the sense of if we're trying to lead through transformation, our cherished outcomes are impossible and and we have to do it anyway. And it's that old Talmud line of like, we are not expected to finish the work, nor are we excused from it. And I feel like that's part of the death rebirth process. It's not, oh, I'm just dying to my old ego or my suburban life of conformity, and now I'm a golden God and I'm riding the anaconda through the rainforest, like woohoo, you know, like it's not that. It's, It's getting clear on what is ours to do, getting clear on what must be done, understanding simultaneously the utter futility of that task and the impossibility of avoiding it so that we can show up joyful And surrendered to the path ahead.
2: Oh. So you're optimist. You're hopeful at least.
1: (laughs) I am I am a transcendental (laughs) optimist, a short term nihilist, um, and and just figuring that hopefully we can we can stick the landing on the other side of the Stargate. Yeah.
2: Okay. (laughs) I'll accept that. (laughs) That's good.
1: (laughs) Beautiful, dude. Thank you so much, Rick.
2: It's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure.
0: This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal or homeopathic supplement and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.